Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Hey, Venture. It's good to be with you. And it's good to be with those of you who are joining us all across the country and some even around the world. There have been a lot of challenges with this season that we've been in. But I am so thankful for the new opportunities for us to be together and to be able to worship together. Now, I don't know about you, but in the state of California, when it was announced this last week that the shelter in place was going to be extended all the way through the month of May, it it felt like a gut punch to me. I, I was so ready for just some movement, some change. And then to hear that we're going to stay in this cocoon for another month, It was a little discouraging. I felt personally a range of emotions, and I've heard from a lot of you as you've dealt with it as well. And so I thought this week it would be healthy for us, while we're in the cocoon, to deal with our emotions, to really look at some of the emotions that I hear from people that you're struggling with the most. And probably consistently, as I've heard from you, as you email, here are the three emotions that I hear about the most that people are struggling struggling with right now. One, it's fear. Second, anxiety. And then the third is sadness. I think there's a sadness that's creeping in. Let's address these. What does the Bible say about fear? How do we prepare emotionally as we deal with our own fears especially in light of the new world that we're moving into. And we've talked a bit about fear over the last several weeks in the sermon, so I won't spend as long on this one. But I want to remind you that in Scripture, the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. God gives us a direct command, do not fear. Now, this is easier said than done. In some ways, you might hear that and it feels a little frustrating that you go, okay, God, you tell me not to fear, but does that help me with it? And one of the things I love about God is he doesn't just tell us not to fear and that we're just supposed to get over it. He gives us a reason why. As a parent, if you've ever raised kids and you have little kids in the house, there's many a time you're awakened in the night and they're afraid. And as much as you want to roll over and just tell them, do not fear, get over it and go back to bed. No, what do you have to do as a good parent? You have to get up and give them a reason not to fear. You have to show them there's nothing under your bed. You have to show them the doors are locked and we're safe. You have to personally reassure them with your presence. And that's what God does over and over again in Scripture. You know, it's been interesting as we've asked people to send in verses that have ministered to them during this time. One of the verses that has been most quoted is from Deuteronomy 31, where Moses is, he's telling the people as they go into the land, They don't have to be afraid. He says it in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous, do not fear, there's the command, or be in dread of the enemies that you're facing. Why? For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He says the reason you don't have to be afraid is not because there's no enemies. It's not because the world's easy. It's because God's with you. And you can trust him. And as we've said over these weeks, and I'll just say it again with this. You can see in your next point in your notes. You either focus on the source of your fear or focus on the sources of your security. 
You, you either spend all of your time focusing on the things that make you fearful, or like Moses commanded the people, you focus on God, that he's with you, that he's never left us, that you can trust him in this. You know, I said several weeks ago, and I'll say it again, you either look at the things that are going to feed your faith or look at the things that are going to feed your fear. You spend every day feeding on news stories and information with that that make you afraid, or you focus and you feed on the things that will give you truth, that will point you back to God. And I know in certain days and at certain times, maybe you wake up in the middle of the night, maybe you see a news story, it's sometimes hard to obey this command not to fear, especially when it looks so dark and confusing. Sometimes you don't even feel like you can even see God. You know, I was reminded of a story of a Navy diver who, who talked about the fact that sometimes you can go diving so deep in the ocean that it's pitch black. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And he said, when you're at that depth and when it's so dark, you can get disoriented to the point that you don't know which way is up. And he says, you can't trust your emotions. You can't trust even your intuition in it. And this panic starts to set in. And someone asked him, they said, what do you do in that moment? And he says, here's what you trust. You always trust the bubbles. He said, the bubbles that are being released, they're always going up. And so just follow the bubbles, not what you're feeling in that moment. And I'd say the same is true for us. There are days when, when fear overtakes us, when it feels so dark, when you can't trust your feelings in it. And here's what I love about God. Here's the bubbles. Here's the truth that he's given us. He says, you can trust my word. You can trust my truth. You can trust me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. And, and sometimes it's not very far. Sometimes it's just a few bubbles. But those bubbles of truth, the bubbles of his word, lead you back to him. And I would encourage you in those moments, trust him that he's with you and you look to him. Now, now with fear, I think a second emotion that goes hand in hand and a lot of people are struggling with is anxiety. What do we do with our anxiety? What, what do you do when you feel that sense of worry and, and it overcomes you? Now, notice in scripture, just like fear, when you look at anxiety in Scripture or worry in Scripture, we're actually commanded again. It's a direct imperative, and the Bible tells us you don't give in to anxiety. In fact, Jesus says it directly in Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore I tell you, and look at the command, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what, you'll, what about your body you'll put on. Life is more than the food and the body and clothing. He's talking about core needs, the core of life. And he says, why do you give in to anxiety about it? And he looks at us, he looks at his original audience, and it's directed to us as well. And guys, it's a direct command. Do not be anxious. Now again, it's a little bit like the command, do not be afraid. When you first hear it, you go, well, that's easier to say than to do. In some ways, it makes us more anxious that we're commanded not to be anxious. Because then we start feeling anxious about the fact that I'm anxious and, and it just builds on itself. And, and if you look in it, here's what Jesus is describing in this passage, though. He says, the reason you don't have to be anxious. You have a father. 
He loves you. The, the same God that takes care of flowers and birds. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? And what he's pointing out in it is anxiety. And you see in your notes, anxiety is just a form of trying to control what I don't have the power to control. Jesus says, you, you don't even have the power like God does to grow flowers. The power over the nature and the birds. Much less the power over you, your life that you think you have. And, and the times we get most anxious is when we're trying to control life. Look how he puts it at the end of that passage, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for one day is its own trouble. And here's what he's saying in that. He says, you can't control what's going to come tomorrow. You, you don't have that power. And your anxiety today is not impacting it tomorrow in the least. Tomorrow's going to have its own trouble. You, you know, James goes to the other side of the coin. He says, you know, anxiety is one form of trying to control tomorrow. Overconfidence is the other. In James chapter 4, he, he says, you say tomorrow, I'm going to go to this city or I'm going to do that. You, you say all these plans declaratively and you don't know if you will. You will if God wills because God's in control. See, the both sides of that coin. On one side, it's anxiety. I don't know about tomorrow. Other side, it's overconfidence. Oh, we absolutely know about tomorrow. And, and that, it feels that way a lot when I read through Twitter today. I'll see some people and they're immediately going, oh, tomorrow's horrible. Everything's bad. Every model is bad. I'll read other people and they immediately with overconfidence say, oh, everything's fine. Open it all up. We're on top of all of it. And, and you feel in this place where you're kind of stuck between it. Here's the reality, guys. We're not in control. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know what it will bring. But I promise you this because some of you, you spend your time and you tell yourself, if I have enough information and if I know enough for my kids and if I protect them enough and if I stay on top of it enough and that anxiety builds to a point and, and it builds up to a, a level and, and we almost get superstitious about it. Because even when you think about letting go of that worry, letting go of that anxiety, immediately the thought comes in, yeah, but if I do that, then the bad stuff will come. And so, yes, I shouldn't be anxious, but it's keeping the bad stuff at bay. Guys, it doesn't work like that. That's not how God designed it. Instead, here's what Scripture tells us to do. Every time you feel that anxiety, it should be a prompt for prayer because God's in control. See, instead of it being a prompt that I've got to think about it more, that I've got to research more, that I've got to be on top of it more, that I've got to get caught in that spiral more, it's that prompt in your mind that I'm feeling anxious and so I stop and I pray. And it's this invitation from God that I recognize he's in control. Look how Paul puts it in Philippians 4. He says, do not be anxious, there's the command again, about anything. And, and look at that, guys, about anything. Pandemics are included in anything. Whether we like it or not, it's in anything. And he says, don't be anxious about it. But here's what we do instead. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And then look what happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, there's this process, okay, I'm anxious Instead of being down on myself about being anxious, instead of researching more, instead of trying to just make it go away, I just stop in that moment and I say, okay, God, you want me to pray. And the more I take it to him, it opens up the opportunity for the peace of God to come. And I I would encourage you, follow this. Look to this. Now, as I say this, and I want to be careful in it, because sometimes you can read one passage And you're talking to an audience where some of you, you have debilitating anxiety. Some of you are dealing with chemical depression. You you feel like you're in a hole that you can't get out of. Or or you're in anxiety, it can be social anxiety, or or this has triggered an anxiety to a level that that really you're stuck. And, And you're praying, and you're looking to God, but you still feel stuck. And it's becoming debilitating for you. And and I want you to hear me. You need to talk to somebody. You you need to call a counselor or a therapist or your doctor. You might need medication. And and I know when I say that to some people, whether it's depression or anxiety, and they hear drugs, and they're like, "Ah, I'm not going to take some drugs, just going to rocket me out of this and solve everything. It doesn't work that way. Now, there's some drugs that will rocket you, but they're not legal. (laughs) And I promise you'll come crashing down. Now, what I'm talking about are medications. It's prescribed by a doctor. And sometimes it's a process. And it's interesting, sometimes when we talk about this in the church, people almost feel like they're spiritually cheating. I mean, if I I take medication, uh, aren't I cheating? And, And shouldn't I just go pray and I'll pray more? And here's all I would say to you. What if those medications were the answer to these prayers? What what if you had been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying about it and God in his goodness and grace has now given us medications that can help? And those are the answers to prayers at times. I know that's been the case in history. I can promise you this, when penicillin was discovered, It was considered an answer to prayer because of all that were saved through it. When the polio vaccine was discovered, it's considered an answer to prayer. If we discover a a vaccine or a cure for COVID-19, I can promise you this. We're going to look at it and go, man, what an answer to prayer. Why would we not consider medications for the mind the same? And if you find yourself in that place, and I'm not saying it's for all, but guys, we got to remove some of the stigma around it. Because God in his goodness has given us therapists. God in his goodness has given us medications that help. And maybe you need that help in this time. As we look at this with fear, and we look at this with anxiety, there's one third category, and I'm hearing more of this, and we don't talk about it a lot in the church, and that's sadness. Sadness, those who are struggling with deep sadness. And there's a lot of sadness, sadness over the loss of life because of COVID. Sadness over families that are separated. Sadness over loss of jobs, employments, people whose companies are going under. Businesses they poured their lives into. There's sadness over life events. I've talked to some who can't go visit their elderly parents in a nursing home and they feel the last part of their lives slipping away. 
you know, I've got a senior in my household, my son, senior year in high school, and we feel a sense of sadness, no graduation, and just the loss of these life events. My daughter's going to have a baby in about a month, and we don't know if we can go because of the separation out of that. We've got friends who their weddings have been postponed. In all of these things, there's a sadness we feel about how the world has changed. How does Scripture help us process this? Now, this is interesting now. Unlike fear and anxiety, there's no command in Scripture that says, do not be sad. But sometimes we treat it that way. In fact, I would say sadness is not a sin. To be sad is not a sin. But we often treat it like it is. And and again, when I say that a sin, maybe that's stronger than it should be. We know in our hearts it's not sinful. But, But it's interesting, especially in Christianity and sometimes evangelical Christianity, we don't like to deal with sadness much. We want to move into the happy parts quick. We want to move the story along. We don't often deal well with people who are struggling with grief. You know, I read about Julian Barnes, a British novelist. and His wife of 30 years died of brain cancer. And he was amazed on the other side of that, how few of his friends could engage his grief at all. They just wanted to move the conversation along. People would tell him, oh, you just need to get a dog. You need to go on a vacation. He said one time over dinner, he he was with three married friends who knew her well. And three times he said her name, talking about her, just to see if anybody would repeat her name. And they wouldn't do it. Kay and Rick Warren described the sadness and grief they went through when their son Matthew committed suicide at the age of 27. And they've been advocates in the church of how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the grief? How do we help those who are struggling with mental health? Their son who was a believer but struggled with depression. I like how Kay writes after a year after Matthew's death. She said, the truest friends and helpers are those who wait for the grievers to emerge from the darkness that swallowed them alive without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient. They don't pressure their friend to be the old familiar person they used to be. They're willing to accept that things are different. They're they're non-demanding in their presence. And it's one of the surest expressions of God's mercy to a suffering friend. They're okay with messy and slow and few answers. And they never say, move on. They never push you ahead. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is he moved into our sadness. He experienced it. Isaiah 53 describes him. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He he knew what it felt felt like. He knew what it it meant to have people hurt you. He knew what it meant to lose someone. In fact, the shortest verse in the Bible is in John 11. Jesus wept. And, And that verse literally means he sobbed. As he stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, He sat there and he sobbed over his death. And if you know the story, I mean, just a few verses later, he's about to raise him from the dead. He's about to call him forth in a resurrection. And there's a part of it, I look at it as Jesus is standing there sobbing. Part of me says, hey, Jesus, why don't you just move it along? Jesus, just get to the good stuff. 
Just resurrect him. What's with all the crying? But here's what Jesus shows us in that moment. This is worth weeping over. Death always is. Loss always is. There's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to be sad. And it's okay. And he shows us in it. In fact, you know, there's a whole part of Scripture we don't talk about much. It's called lament. You know, my brother-in-law and his wife, in the last few years, they've buried two young daughters to a devastating disease, Batten's disease. And as I've watched them walk through their grief, you know, one time he asked me, he said, why does the church never talk about lament? Why, why is it never an expression in that? And, and it's a good question because if you look to the Bible, there's large parts of it that are dedicated to lament. There's a whole book called Lamentations where the prophet Jeremiah is lamenting for the nation of Israel as they're carried into captivity. About a third of the Psalms, the Psalms were the worship book for the people of Israel. And about a third of those Psalms, they're Psalms of lament. In fact, David was one of the key ones who did this well, who lamented well. Now, when I use that term lament, a lament is a raw, honest expression of pain given as a form of prayer and worship. They're very raw. I encourage you, read through the Psalms. There's this raw language. It's not all buttoned up. It's not all like everything's perfect or they immediately jump to the right answer. It's raw. It's honest. Very honest in what they're feeling. But it's given as an expression of this pain, this disappointment, this sense of injustice as a form of prayer and worship. God actually put it in the Bible. He actually welcomes it. I mean, if you look in Scripture, you know, I told you David was very good at it. I remember in, in 2 Samuel, at the beginning of it, when David first finds out that Saul the king and his son Jonathan were killed. Jonathan was David's best friend. Look how he responds. David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. So, so David hears the word. And, and, and he doesn't even just cry in the moment. It says he lamented and he wrote out a lament. The rest of the chapter, it's this worship song that he wrote. It's this song in remembrance of his friend where he pours out his heart. And then he teaches everyone else. He says, we're, we're going to give expression to our pain. We don't just bury it. We actually express it. And ultimately, we're expressing it to God. At a later time in his life, look in Psalm chapter 6. David says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I mean, do you hear the expression of this? And, and this isn't buttoned up. It's pretty open and honest. As, as he laments what's going on in his life. Later in Psalm 88, it's another worship leader who writes one of these psalms of lament. And in the whole chapter, he's talking like this. And notice how he ends it. But I, O oh Lord, I cry out to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? God, why are you casting me away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. 
Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's the last verse of the psalm. Boom, that's the end of the psalm. I mean, I mean there, there's no tie it up and make it all tidy and okay, let's end it with just the right phrase and we got to say good things. He, he just says, honestly, this is how I feel. And this is part of their worship songs. Honestly, I, I've not seen a lot of worship songs, current worship songs written from Psalm 88. I mean, it, it wouldn't be real catchy. I mean, can you, you imagine if, you know, you're sitting there trying to sing to this song and just go, you know, your terrors, Lord, I'm suffering. People are shunning me. Life stinks. All right, everyone now. Life stinks. Raise your hand. Life stinks. Let's sing that about 50 times. Life we, we don't write songs like that, do we? We don't sing songs like that. Hopefully we would sing them better than that. But maybe we should more. Maybe there's a raw honesty here that, that we don't let ourselves go to. Because we have to have all the quick, easy answers and move people along. And, and in that, I think we put people in a really hard place if we don't develop a better theology of how to deal with sadness and pain. Because here's what happens in life. If you look at the diagram here, you go through life, there I am and there's God and everything's fine until the next point, pain shows up. And, and, and so often, because we want to move along quickly, because we can't deal with it, we, we, we just, all right, well, okay, there was some pain, let's just cover that up. It's gone now. And, and we tell people, if you just obey God enough and you love God enough, and if we just focus on the happy things, and if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Oh, wait, no, we can't clap our hands because we've got to keep covering up the pain. But the problem is, people know it's still there. It didn't go anywhere. And, and, and people start wrestling with the reality that, that this feels more real than sometimes he does. And instead of covering up the pain, you know what they do? They go, I, I don't have a way of processing this. And they end up covering up God. And saying, I'll, I'll just do life without him. Because this hurts so bad. And that might be some of you. Maybe some of you, you, you were hurt at some point in life. And it didn't add up. And God didn't fit into the equation. And so you just said, he doesn't exist anymore in my world. Here's all I would caution you. If you do that, the pain's still there, guys. It didn't go away. And now you have no one. It's just you and the pain. You know, I was reminded of the story of Sigmund Freud. A hundred years ago, the brilliant psychiatrist Sigmund Freud when the last big flu pandemic went through the world, he lost his 23-year-old daughter, Sophie. She was his pride and joy. She was pregnant with her third child. And he said he and his wife went through a grief they didn't think they'd ever overcome. And then three years later, Sophie's four-year-old son, Heimlich, Freud's grandson, he died. And as Freud described it, 
He said, I, I thought I had experienced pain like that before. This was even greater. And then it's so interesting in his description because he says, I don't know what to do with it as an unbeliever. In other words, he says, I don't believe there is a God. But then he says these words, but I want to accuse someone. I want to rail against someone. I want someone to answer to this. But I have no someone. Because in his worldview, there was none. You know what he was crying out for? He was crying out to be able to lament. That I want to be honest with someone. That I want to express it to someone. See, this is what I love about our God and I love about Scripture. That he says, hey, I'm a big God. And no matter how big your pain is, you can bring it to me. No matter what it makes you feel. No matter what you need to express in that. Don't do this alone. Bring it to me. And guys, some of you right now, as you're feeling this pain, as you're wrestling with this, take it to God. Don't wrestle alone. And as you do that, and, and I'll just caution you just a few more points around this, because we don't talk about sadness enough. It's very easy right now, and I hear this, where people, we kind of diminish our own. Or maybe you look at it and you go, yeah, but I, I haven't been through loss like your brother-in-law. I haven't been through loss. I haven't lost a loved one to COVID or I haven't lost my job. And, and, and we kind of diminish our own pain in that. Here's the point I would say. The pain of others gives us perspective. I hope you do see the pain of others and it does change your perspective on life, that you do appreciate what God's given you. But it does not diminish the reality of our own pain. Guys, pain is pain. It may not be as great as theirs. You may have much to be thankful for, but you still have to deal with it. And many of us, if you're like me, I have this ability to kind of compartmentalize and minimize in that. Some of it's based on some of the trauma growing up when my dad died and all that. I remember one year I was talking to a counselor and he was listening to my life story and some of the hard events of it. And as I was just describing it, he stopped me and he said, he goes, man, you have this unbelievable ability to be able to minimize the pain in your life. And I remember looking at him and I said, well, thank you. And he goes, I didn't mean that as a compliment. He said, if, if you keep minimizing, here's what it does. The more you minimize the pain in your life, it, it starts minimizing your emotional bandwidth, your ability to feel. And, and with that, here's what comes. When you limit your ability to feel pain, you limit your ability to feel joy. At some point, because you can't go there, you can't go to the happier places in life. You can't feel the deep things as well. Others can't feel it with you. You know, that's one reason David has so many psalms that are this awesome expression of joy. That's one reason David wrote so many psalms that we do write music to. Because he was willing to live in both sides of the spectrum. And I would encourage you, don't minimize it. Don't shut it off. Because you, you shut off your ability to experience life in the fullness, to experience God in the fullness in that. And ultimately, your experience to be able to love others well. 
Because remember, it's not just about us. It's about the people we live with and a world we're called to love. The final point you see in this, a full emotional bandwidth allows us to fully love others well. It, It allows us to expand our world to be able to step into it. In fact, that's what we're called to do. Romans 12 tells us explicitly, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who who weep. Do you, you read what Paul's telling us? It's not just about you. And you can't just live in your safe world and you can't even just deal with your own pain or your own good times. You're called to step into the world of others and to rejoice with them and to weep with them. And there's a world that we're about to step into that they need people who know how to love like this. They need people who've experienced this in their life. You know, I'll close with the story of Carissa Smith, who one day was walking through the public library with her two-month daughter. She was holding her daughter, and uh, daughter's cooing and kind of making different noise. And this older gentleman was sitting there, and finally he looks up gruffly, and he says, you need to shut that kid up or I will. And as a mother, she rightfully got angry and she said, look, I don't know what has happened in your life that would make you to be angry like this, but I'm not going to shut up my child and you're not going to either. And she prepared for the fight that she thought she was going to have when suddenly his face fell and he looked down and then finally looking up with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As they sat there, he he finally confessed, my son died when he was two months old. He died of SIDS. And I've just struggled with it since. Carissa took the time to sit down next to him and to listen to his story. And he wept over the death of his son 50 years earlier. And he talked about how his anger from it and the pain from it led to a broken marriage and a life of isolation. And as he talked, he started to make more eye contact with her daughter. And finally, at one point, he looked up and he said, could I hold her for a second? She placed the baby in his arms. And he smiled at the child. And then for just a moment, he took his cheek and placed it right down on her forehead. And with tears and thanks, he handed her back. And Carissa looked at him and she said, thank you for opening up and sharing your story. Guys, there's a lot of people out there who are hurting. There will be a lot more. And they're afraid and they're anxious, and there's sadness they don't know how to deal with. But the Bible speaks to each of these. And Christ experienced all of this. Christ stepped into our world so that he could change our lives, so that we can step into the lives of others. I would encourage you, if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with this kind of sadness, 
Don't shut him out. Invite him in. No one knows or cares or loves more because he experienced everything we experience. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you. I thank you that your word speaks to real life. It speaks to real emotions. I thank you that you are meeting us in this time. I thank you that you've called us to be your church, that we can be light bearers, that we can step into a world, not as people who have all the answers, not as people who don't struggle with our own emotions, but as people who have had our lives changed by Jesus Christ, as people who know that you care and that knowing you makes a difference. Lord, I pray for anyone struggling today. I pray as they hear this, if they need to reach out, they would reach out. If they need medical help, they'd get help. If they need to talk to a friend, they'd talk to a friend. Lord, I pray for those that you've laid on our hearts that we need to reach out to, that we need to check on, that we need to call, that we can step into the world the way you stepped into our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.